Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by site co-experts Lucas Johnson and Chris Klein. Welcome to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host here, Christopher Klein, and our tech support, Uriah Young. How are we doing tonight, guys? Good. Some good drama to get into, gentlemen. Yes, there's a lot of great subjects. And uh, let's go ahead and just jump into it because there were a lot of comments made, you know, last couple days, including today, either by Joel Embiid or by the coach, Brett Brown. So let's go ahead and get into these today, particularly. And uh, I wrote about this earlier today and I extended this into tomorrow. You'll see it uh, the next day. It is uh, Monday night, by the way. Two major comments were made today. Let's go into Burt Brown's first because Burt Brown made a dropped a huge bombshell that I think we at the Sixer Sense have been waiting for for a while, and that's that he's been exclusively playing Ben Simmons at the power forward position during these last couple practices. So, Chris, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, like you said, it's been a long time coming. I think Brett said something along the lines of Ben is an all-star point guard and an all-universe point forward which I, I like a lot. Uh, you know, Brett Brown is always always good with the uh, the eloquent quotes. Um, and, yeah, long time coming. I think Ben, I think playing the power forward opens up his game a lot. I think he can do a lot of damage off ball as a screener, as a as a cutter. Um, Brett said he's bought in um, 100% like a star. So that's good news to hear because I know we've always questioned Ben's willingness uh, you, you know, not play point guard. I know that's been a big sticking point for him in the past. So, you know, that's just great news. And I think it's really important for the Sixers title uh, chances this season for Ben to really buy into that off-ball role to get more playmaking uh, done in the half court. So, yeah, I'm all for it. I agree with a lot with, with what you said there. It, this has been a long time coming. He played power forward in college. And to have him, and and I, and you know, I don't know if you saw uh, Keith Pompey's video tweet about this, but Brett uh, had a full-on, like, minute, almost two-minute uh, video explaining this, into where you know when Ben first came in, it wasn't like there was a established point guard already, and uh, you know they didn't have a Damian Lillard or somebody on that pedestal, so he kind of just gave the reins to Ben back then. But now they have somebody in Shake Milton and. I guess technically that he could have done this, you know, two years ago with, you know, Markel Fultz, but you know, that's another subject for another time. Right. <laughs> and, um, but no, seriously, you know, he has somebody that can really be a solid playmaker and we'll get into shake in a minute. Cause Joel Embiid said something about him, but I think this is a good role for Ben. Like you said, he's a great screener. He can cut to the basket. He can be dynamic in the pick and roll. He's his athleticism can kind of be forgotten without that pick-and-roll offense. You don't really – when he dives to the basket and he leaps, he is an incredible athlete. And I think that was somewhat forgotten with his 
role as a point guard. And Brown said this in that video that having him as the primary playmaker in the half court kind of diminishes some of the other things that he can do in the half court. So I think this is a right move. We both believe this has been a long time coming. But obviously, there are more ramifications to this, and we'll get into that later in this podcast. You know, Chris, that wasn't the only major, you know, comment made today. And Joel Embiid, you know, he's one of the 10 best players in the league easily, especially when he's focused on you. He's arguably a top five. You see him, and then he makes these comments about Shake Milton, and he made comments about other players too, and we'll get to them. But Shake Milton's came out today, and that he was really impressed with Shake and thinks that he's going to be really good. So, Chris, you want to elaborate on that a little bit more and your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously this goes hand-in-hand with the Ben Simmons thing. Um, Joe said that Shake has been the starting point guard in practice. That's something we've been speculating on forever, both on this podcast and on the site and just in the general you know, void of the Sixers corner of the internet. I think we all liked what we saw out of Shake the last month or so before the season was suspended. He can hit threes at a really high level. He's a really smart playmaker, even if he's not the most explosive or the most, you know, twitchy point guard out there. He can he can make plays in the pick and roll. He can make smart passes. He moves the ball well. He's going to be just fine in that role, I think. I don't think any of this means Ben is, is not going to be carrying a pretty large share of the playmaking role. He's still going to be getting probably eight or nine assists a game. Like, I don't think Ben's not going to have the ball. You know, he still will. So, uh, yeah, this is good news, I think. Um, Shake's going to be really important down the stretch here just because this is really his first prolonged stretch of NBA basketball. He's being thrown into the spotlight a bit. So I'm I'm really interested to see how he's going to handle that, how he's going to handle the responsibilities because uh, the playoffs are right around the corner at this point. So, yeah, I tend to agree. I think that we're going to see the true Shake Milton. And if his G League numbers and this mini breakout that he had before the hiatus show us anything, is that he can be special. So I'm excited about that. I tend to agree with Embiid. And I think you're right about Simmons as well, is that I don't expect a major dip in his assist numbers. You know, the lowest I see is him averaging like six assists, but I think he's still going to stay around seven or eight. I think that's still totally possible. Because And Brown said this in his comments that I forgot to mention earlier, is that he still expects Ben to be the, I guess he, did, he didn't say this, but he kind of implied that he still expects Ben to be the point guard in the fast break because he's going to grab the rebound on one end and run it full court the other end. Kind of, kind of like what Blake Griffin was doing with the Pistons uh, two years ago before the, all the injuries. So I think this is good for the Sixers. We know that Milton has, uh, has been able to run the pick and roll in the past. Uh, especially, I think he's a better passer than Richardson. I honestly, outside of Simmons, he's probably the, I I would say he's the second best pass. Well, no, third best passer because you got Al Horford, but the second best, you know, on the ball, you know, dribbling passer because Horford obviously doesn't dribble a whole ton. I mean, he can dribble enough, but you, you get what I'm saying, Chris. And I think that this is a good move. I'm excited to see what, especially during these eight seeding games because, you know, you would still expect the uh, starters to kind of be brought on slowly, especially, you know, Tobias, Ben, and Joel. But I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, and like you said, I I don't think this is meant to take Ben out of a playmaking role. This is just to get him more involved in the half-court offense, give him different looks, give the defense different looks. Putting him in the screen and roll is going to force his defender out to the paint or out of the paint to either switch 
you know, so this is just to kind of uh, mix up the looks that he gets in the half court. He's still going to be able to play make out of these pick and rolls. He's still going to be, like you said, the main guy in transition, just grabbing and going. The Sixers run a lot more than I think people give them credit for. And Ben is just, you know, the engine that makes that transition offense run. So I don't think this is going to mean some big dip in production from Ben. If anything, I think it's going to help him quite a bit. So, yeah, good this, news all around. Is, Very exciting. Mm-hmm. This is definitely going to help the Sixers transition offense for sure because we all know that Tobias and Richardson thrive in the you know transition. We would assume that Shake Milton would as well, based on you know just how he plays in general. And I think the other thing that we have to look at is that this lineup, even though it's not featuring a another big like Horford, it's still very good defensively if you think about it because Shake Milton has a long wingspan. Richardson's a you know step a tier below elite defender in NBA. Tobias Harris is a weakling, but he's been playing, uh, you know, he's been, he's been an average defender in the NBA this season, I would say, maybe even a tick above just based off of effort. And him and, uh, him and Simmons can switch, you know, perimeter players. Uh, him, Tobias, him, Richardson, and Simmons can switch, you know, who needs to guard who, to, even to an extent, shake. There's still so much def- defensive versatility in that lineup that basically you have at least a player outside of Joel that can defend three to four positions at any given time. So that's, I think that's something that we need to consider with this lineup as well. And I'm excited about that aspect. Yeah. I mean, Shake has something like what, like a six eleven, seven foot wingspan, right? Like he's, you would know about more he's than a me. lot longer than he maybe looks on screen, uh, but mm-hmm. Yeah, Shake's a pretty big guard. And like you said, I think Harris is probably going to be guarding the quote-unquote power forwards on defense. Ben's still going to be out on the wing, out on the perimeter a lot because of his ability uh, to switch and lock down at the point of attack. And I think that helps Tobias a lot. He's obviously more comfortable guarding power forwards. So this was, again, a very necessary change. And we'll get into the uh, consequences for Al Horford later in the episode. But very exciting news. Especially, and speaking of Horford, Joel spoke of Horford earlier this week. And it's something that we we obviously cannot ignore here because he thinks, and I I think I've written on this in the past, that him and Horford can work, but they need to be surrounded by willing shooters, which, uh, you know, I've said in the past, and Joel echoed that. I'm sure he probably, I I have the honor if he read my article, but even if he didn't, it, it just, you know, lines up in that fact, in that. They need to have willing shooters, and I think we can all say that Ben is not a willing shooter yet. He hasn't proven to be. So I think we're gonna have if we're gonna see Joel and Horford be effective on offense together. And you know we have a healthy Horford now because he's admitted that he wasn't healthy for most of the season, especially after that injury uh, in early December, late November. So <clears throat> I think we'll see a much better version of them, especially. With the emergence of Shake, you have you know Tobias, Shake, and Richardson, or you can throw in Alec Burks, Glenn Robinson, or Corkmaz because it sounds like Corkmaz is going to probably be a decent, uh, good contributor this postseason. You know, you get willing and able shooters like them around those two bigs. It's totally possible. We've seen it with like Serge Ibaka, Marcus All, Anthony Davis, Dwight Howard slash Javale McGee. You know, so I think that's possible. But Chris, your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, we've seen Al Horford play with other bigs in the past. He played with Aaron Baines a lot in Boston. Um, he's maybe not 
as mobile this season as he, he has been the past couple years. At least it hasn't looked that way. He's ideally a center, but I, I do think the lineups with Joel and him can work. It's just the lineups with Joe, Al, and Ben all on the court together that really get clogged up. As you mentioned to me before, off the air, uh, the comment about needing willing shooters around him and Al did seem like a little bit of a, a nudge at Ben, if nothing else. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think defensively, Al can probably still handle most traditional power forwards. Um, offensively, he's skilled enough on the perimeter. He can get enough pick and roll looks if we're giving Shake Milton, Alec Burks, guys like that more minutes. Uh, yeah, I think Joel and Al works in theory. It's just Joel, Al, and Ben. Um, that triumvirate really just doesn't doesn't uh, calculate at this point. You're right, and uh, I don't think we need to beat that that into the ground anymore. So I want to move on. And there were two other quick comments that Joel made that I kind of want to touch on. The one that I think most Sixers have kind of admitted, especially Shake Mill along with Joel, is that they're not fans of this bubble. And I think that the main purpose, from what I understand, is primarily focusing on the social justice issues. So what are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I think a lot of players were kind of upset about that, and that's something we're going to talk on later as well. Um, I think my biggest issue, and it's the one that Joel really pounded too, was just he's not very confident that all the players are going to follow these social distancing guidelines, are going to follow the player safety guidelines that the NBA set out. He doesn't really trust them. You know, he said he was a homebody. He just sits in his room and plays video games. You know, he'll be fine, but he's not sure about everyone else, which I, I understand. I kind of share those sentiments. Obviously, I'm not in the bubble, but it does seem like a bit of a, you know, ticking time bomb at this point. Florida continues to set new records in terms of coronavirus cases. They are basically the global epicenter at this point. And I think it's very fair to have concerns over just the stability of this bubble. Is that why is that why he showed up in a hazmat suit? I darn it, you're right. I was gonna I was gonna get get to that. Yes, probably. Yeah, no, he, he's already showing that he's trying to be responsible in the hazmat suit. Totally, totally the reason why. I think that doubles both as like a serious comment and, you know, a prank. I I think we know Joel uh, is always willing to make a joke about it, but uh, I do think there's kind of a serious side to that. So, uh, you know, props to him for speaking out. Uh, Props to to Shake for doing the same, but uh, they're there. They're willing to compete, and I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, how this goes. I will say that so far Joel has been proven right because since the bubble has been established, there have already been two players that have broken quarantine. The first was Bruno Co- uh Gosh, how do you pronounce his last Caboclo. name? Caboclo. Yes, he broke uh, quarantine. So he has to stay in quarantine longer. He's on the Rockets. And then former Sixers center Rashawn Holmes went to go get takeout. <laughs> so he's on lockdown now for, I think, 10 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. No, Joel's been kind of proven right. And, you know, hopefully, you know, Joel, you know, we, uh, we're we hoping – so far the Sixers, from what I understand, haven't had any issues recently with coronavirus outside of the initial three uh, personnel people with the organization when it first happened in March. I don't – from what I understand, there hasn't been any other, you know, cases of this. So the Sixers so far have been seal tight, and let's hope that they stay that way. 
in all fairness to Rashawn, it, it did say in the report that it was an accident. So he he didn't know necessarily that he was breaking the rules. Both um, players I, said it was an accident because yeah. they didn't. And know. I believe it was Kelly Oubre who tweeted out something about the NBA players essentially being able to sneak in postmates, and then later on, after the Rashawn Holmes news broke, uh, tweeted, "Never mind." Yeah, again, like you said, Joel might be vindicated a bit because uh, it does seem like some of these guys are maybe uh, already trying to bend the rules. So the last Joel and B comment we got here is that he's wanting the offense to flow through him during the postseason. He thinks he can carry the Sixers. Chris, do you think he can? And if so, do you think that's a championship formula for the Sixers? Yeah, I mean, I think any Sixers championship run is going to inevitably go through Embiid. He's their best player at his best. He's one of the NBA's best players. Um, we've we've heard the, some variation of these comments forever where Joe's saying he needs to be more aggressive. He needs to take control of the offense. It's not the first time he said that this season. It just hasn't really happened yet. Um, I'm hoping this is different just because um, he seems to be in good shape. They've had three, four months off at this point. So maybe he's a bit well-rested. We've really reached the final stretch here. They have eight games left before the postseason. So if Embiid was waiting to flip a switch, which it always felt like he was uh, for the most part this season, now's the time to flip it. But, yeah, I mean, it's always good to hear. He just needs to deliver on it, essentially. So last time we had a truly dominant big man, like completely take over a series and win it was probably Shaquille O'Neal. Maybe Tim Duncan back in 2007, I would say. that. Yeah, I would say Duncan 2007. Because since then, I don't remember a big being the primary focal point of an offense and winning a championship. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Because I don't count the Spurs in 2000, what was it, 13 or 14? Because at that point, the team was becoming Kawhi's and Duncan was way past his prime. But... My my point stands is that we haven't seen a big man win a championship in over 10 years, almost 20. So it'd be the focal point of a team. So that's working against Jitnaduwa. So I have to think about that. The other thing that I have to think about is that there are some centers that can give Joel problems. Marcus All has been that primary big man that has given Joel problems. Granted, Gasol looks like he turned himself into a long-distance runner recently with how much weight he's lost. So maybe that's in Joel's favor. I don't know. There are definitely, and then there's Brooke Lopez, who while, you know, obviously doesn't give Joel quite as much problems, he's no slouch either. He's going to, you know, make Joel work for it. So do I think Joel can be the focal point of, of the offense? Yes, I think he can, especially if he's healthy and he's dialed in and well-conditioned. Is that a championship formula? I don't know because it hasn't happened in so long. I think, or preferably, I think the best option would be if Ben Simmons would take the next step, you know, develop a jumper and become the team's best player and one of the league's best players. But until that happens, which, I mean, you, Chris, believe that that's not going to happen this postseason that it's going to be on Joel. And history is not on Joel's side as much as I love Joel and this team. I don't know. History is working against him, but, you know, Joel Embiid is one of the most unique big, big men in the NBA today because not only is he efficient inside, he's efficient at the foul line. He can stress the floor just good enough. Yeah, I think the debate of whether or not a traditional center, quote-unquote, like Embiid, uh, can lead a championship 
team is a real one, and that's a debate we can have uh, at some point on this podcast. But in terms of, you know, the Sixers, I don't think there's a variation of this team this season that can compete for a championship that doesn't involve Embiid taking on a bigger burden and really kind of, uh, you know, really taking control of this offense. I think if it, if any big man can make that work, it's probably Embiid just because he's so unique, as you said, in the pressure that he can put on the rim. He draws so much attention in the post. He draws so many fouls, gets guys in foul trouble. He can really open up uh, open shots on the perimeter if he gets better as a passer. That's something he's done marginally this season. Maybe he unlocks a new gear in the postseason. We'll see. Um, like you said with Ben, you know, him – Playing more of a four, more of a pick and roll, you know, screen and roll guy, that'll help. But there's no one else on this roster that can really be that number one guy on a championship team. Ben's not there yet. It's not going to be Tobias. It's not going to be Josh Richardson. So if the Sixers are going to have any chance of winning a championship, it's going to have to go through Embiid. I'm not sure if it can, but, you know, it has to. That's really the only option the Sixers have. So, Joe's got to step up and he's got to prove himself as, you know, the top 10 player that we're all claiming he is. You're right. You're right. But moving, you know, you speak of, you know, top 10 players, but, you know, Bleacher Report recently came out with something, and I know you had some – you wrote about this. So you want to get into this for us, Chris? Yeah. So essentially for the past week or so, Bleacher Report has been uh, releasing articles ranking – they first did the top 15 players at every position. And then at the end, they released the big top 100 ranking for players this season. We're basically going to go down the list here. We're going to start with Ben at the point guard spot, Tobias at the power forward spot and Joel at the center spot. And then we can talk about uh, the top 100 ratings rankings here at the end. It's important to note that these rankings were based on this season and value added this season alone. So obviously Al Horford was omitted from the power forward and center lists. Josh Richardson was omitted from the shooting guard list. I think that has a lot to do with injuries um, with respect to Josh. So I I can understand that one. But we're going to start with Simmons. He was rated as the number four point guard in the league this season behind Chris Paul, Damian Lillard, and Luka Doncic. Lucas, did you find that fair? What were your thoughts on that? You know, sometimes I forget that Doncic is a point guard, is listed as a point guard. But, yeah, I think that honestly is fair. You know, if – yeah, because you think about it, Ben's still one of the best passers in the league, and he's outside of the jump shot is the most well-rounded point guard in terms of his skills. Defensively, he's the most defensively versatile. He's the best rebounder. Well, actually, I don't know if it's him or Westbrook. It's one of those two. But he's the top rebounder at the position. And, you know, he's no slouch. He can, you know, he averages 16 points per game in a, all, you know, in a starting five that doesn't complement his skill set. And when, you know, it does with either Horford or Joel Embiid out of the lineup, he's averaging around, I think, what was it, 21, 22 points? So, yeah, I think fourth is fair. Uh, you know, you still got Chris Paul and you said Damian Lillard and Luka Doncic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lillard and Doncic are playing at MVP levels and Chris Paul is still the best floor general in the NBA so I think fourth is more than generous yeah I agree he was the head of you know Kyrie Irving Kyle Lowry guys like that so you know this is no no attempt to uh, discredit Ben Simmons by any means I think it was again fair 
Luca's one of the three or four best players in the league, I think, at this point, which is pretty mm-hmm. insane, uh, but uh, it's the truth. And as you said, Damian is at a near MVP level. If Portland wasn't so mediocre, he'd probably be in that discussion. And Chris Paul is still Chris Paul. He's an older version of Chris Paul, but he's still Chris Paul. We've seen that this season. He's, you know, he's, it's just is what it is. Um, I've been really strong all season in saying Ben's a top 20 guy in the league. I've always been really confident in Ben as a player. I think he's almost underrated at this point by the general, you know, populace of NBA fans. So, yeah, I buy it. I, I think it's the right, the right spot for him. So, Chris, to build off of that and build off our previous subject, with Ben shifting to the power forward position, I guess you can't really sh- categorize him as a point guard anymore. So, we're, in your personal opinion, where would you have him as, as a power forward? Well, you know, i got to look over the list here. I mean, he, I think there's a very good chance that you could argue that he's number four there, too. The top four for Bleacher Report are Giannis, AD, Pascal Siakam, and Zion. Zion's probably going to be better than Ben once he, you know, gets into the swing of things. It's a little early to to make that proclamation just because he's played like 14 games. But I think Pascal probably has the edge. Um, That's a real toss-up for me. You can maybe even say he's kind of tied for third. But, you know, AD and Giannis obviously take the top two spots there. So I, I think Pascal for me. Yeah, I think I think he's a top five. I don't know if I would put him against Zion yet because Zion, there isn't enough body of work for me to see if he can last a full season and what he looks like over a full season. And I think the same goes for Ben. We have to see how he plays at the power forward versus the centers. I mean, versus point guard. But my gut feeling would say he's probably a top five power forward. Yeah, for sure. Even if his stats stay about the same. Uh, that would still have have me have him as a top five. Yeah, and there are other good players in that conversation. You know, DeMontis Sabonis, Danilo Gallinari, Kristaps Porzingis. But I would take Ben probably just in general over all those guys as as a basketball player. So for me, yeah, it's top top four or five at the worst. And we're going to move into the power forward position now and talk about Tobias Harris. Uh, they used matchup data to confirm uh, the position for all these players. Obviously, Tobias has spent a good chunk of the season at the three, but in lineups that don't involve Al Horford, he's almost always a four. That's his natural position. That's where Bleacher Report decided to have him, and they ranked him as the number 11 power forward in basketball. I think a couple notable guys ahead of him here. Paul Millsap was number 10, Kevin Love was number 9, and John Collins was number 8. Lucas, do you do you buy that? Do you think that was a fair spot for Tobias? I would have to see the whole list, but I definitely would have him ahead of Paul Millsap. Paul Millsap is still solid power forward, but at this point in his career, he's past his prime. He's not – he's still a starting-level power forward, but I think he's definitely past his prime at this point. He's not a difference maker like he used to be, and he's not an all-star, where I think if you had to put who's more likely to be an all-star – between Al Horford and not Al Horford, sorry, Tobias Harris and Paul Millsap moving forward, it'd probably be Tobias Harris. He's younger, he's more athletic, I think, at this point. And I just I like I like the versatility and Horford uh, Harris's game a little bit more than uh, Millsap's aging game. 
Yeah, I so think I would have him in the top ten. Yeah, I think I think I would as well. I would probably favor Tobias there. Um, I think with Millsap, the reason he's ranked higher is probably going to come down to defense, just because he's still a bit better on that end than Tobias is. Um, but as you said, I think Tobias's ceiling is a good bit higher than Millsap. And if he was the number one option or the number two option on a team, if he was still on the Clippers without Kawhi and Paul George, he'd probably uh, get the nod there. And he also did get off to a slow start this season, which probably factors into it, though he has been really, really solid since about mid-November, which the article uh, made sure to point out. I found Kevin Love's ranking at number nine pretty interesting. I, I think in a vacuum, obviously Love is still the better player, but he's pretty much been going at half speed all season on a really big Cavs team. That's not to say he hasn't produced. He has. I think it's 17.6 points. 9.8 rebounds, 3.2 assists. He's uh, shooting plenty of threes. He's still a really good player, but uh, I might just buy Tobias over Kevin Love at this point just because, A, the Sixers are a better team. He's contributing more to a winning roster, and I think he's played a good bit uh, harder than Kevin has this season. And, and Love isn't particularly great on defense, I think, at this stage in his career. The Cavs have been the worst defensive team in basketball, right up there with the Wizards. So, so I thought that was an interesting choice on Bleacher Report's part. You know, I think I was giving Kevin Love the benefit of the doubt of history on his side versus Millsap, and that's not fair. If we're looking at this season, I think Kevin Love would probably have a stronger argument if he was on a winning team where he actually wanted to play. Because let's be clear, he doesn't want to be on the Cavs anymore. <laughs> and so I think – I think you could make a strong argument that Harris is better. I mean, yes, Love's the better passer and rebounder, but at the same token, Harris is a lot better defender and probably uh, he can create his offense a lot easier than, than Love can at this point. But, yeah, to wrap it up, I think Tobias Harris could definitely be number 10 on that list. If, if not number nine, I think you make a valid argument against Kevin Love being number nine, but I don't, don't think he'd get past nine. Yeah, I think we're both both in agreement there. Uh, can maybe be a couple spots higher, but in general, I think it's a pretty fair rating. Uh, so we're going to move on to the center position now, where Joel Embiid was controversially the number two center on their list, behind, of course, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets. Now, it's important to emphasize that this list is based on value added in the 2019-20 season. This is not a general rankings list. This is based on this season alone. And it's important to remember how, I don't know, passive Embiid has been at times this season, or seemed. Um, but, Lucas, what are your thoughts on that? Would you have put Joe number one? That's a tough one, because, you know, we both said in the past that, you know, that there's been nice that he's definitely kind of taken off. But I think if we're going from pure skill set, I would still have him beat number one, and maybe I'm just being a homer in this in this instance, but you think about it. Joel Embiid's a better defender, even if when he's taking it easy. He's still in a you know top five defensive center, if not top three. You know, even though he's taking you know nights off defensively and offensively, he's still a better scorer than Jokic is. He's still a better rebounder, though it's close. You know that you could coin flip that one. Jokic is clearly the better passer. I'm not here to argue that. Jokic will probably go down as one of the best passing big men ever to play the game. But then, you know, defensively, I think 
But Joel Embiid's not a slouch passing even either, even though he has turnover problems. He's still averaging around three and a half assists a game. So, I, you know, and that's with another passer and now Horford taking away touches from him. So you put that all together, one fast of the offensive game that Jokic is better, clearly better than Joel Embiid, and it's by, you know, a decent amount. But then you take Jokic, who is an average defender, let's just say around average, because I think that's fair to say to him. He's not a bad defender. I think he's an average defender. And then Joel Embiid, who's arguably second past two seasons, you know, second place in defensive player of the year votes. So, and even this year, he'd still probably be in the top five in those votes, top five, top six. So, yeah, no, I still give it to Embiid, though. It's probably closer this season than it had been in most past seasons. But Jokic still started off the season rather roughly, too. So, you know, I think I would still give it to Embiid. Yeah, I think if we were just, you know, doing this in general, taking both players at their absolute best, I would I would take Embiid. But with regard to this season, I think it's fairly close. As you mentioned, this really hasn't been Embiid at his best this season. Um, even defensively, it seems like he's taken a step back at certain points and maybe not been – um, as aggressive defensively as he has been in the past. I mean, if you just read the stat lines, Jokic is averaging, you know, just roughly 20 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists on 52% shooting, 31 from deep. Joe is averaging 23, um, 12, 3 on 48% shooting, 35% from deep. So the numbers are pretty similar. They both average the same turnovers per game, though Jokic is, has essentially doubled in bead. Um, in the assist category, Jokic is obviously throwing the ball around the court a lot more. He's the much more efficient player in that standpoint. From that standpoint, Jokic is essentially better on offense, and Bead's better on defense. That's where this conundrum is. That's where this debate is always going to rear its head. It's going to be whether you value what Jokic gives you on offense or what Bead gives you on defense. But well, the job in today's the center's job in today's NBA is defense primarily. So, yeah, I agree. I think as as far as who I would want in a playoff series, I'd probably take Embiid again, though we have seen Embiid struggle quite a bit in the postseason at times. I think durability is a big thing, too. Jokic uh, has generally been healthier than Embiid during his career, not that he hasn't dealt with injuries himself. I, I think if we're just going on this season alone, Jokic probably takes the edge just because really Embiid has been underwhelming at certain points. But as far as who I think is just the better player, it's Embiid. And I, I think this was neck and neck for the guys at Bleacher Report. I think it's neck and neck in general. You could put this either way. It wouldn't really matter. So uh, I think, you know, those guys are going to be one, two for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Cause I think, so, so I guess, and I'm curious, Chris, if you remember who did Bleacher Report have as number three? Cause I have my idea, but I want to know what who they had. Um, Bleach Report's number three was Carl Anthony Towns. Okay, that's who I would have to, because as well as Rudy Gilbert is on defense, he took a step back this year. And then on top of that, I think Carl Anthony Towns is, if he was even the defender that Jokic is, I think it would be hard to not have him on the same level as those two, but because he's just so unique offensively, you know, as a three-point shooter, but. Yeah, no, that sounds about right to me. For sure. I, I think I think I agree on that front. So we're going to move quickly here into the top 100. 
Bleacher Report had four Sixers on their top 100. Al Horford was number 81. Tobias Harris was number 63. Ben Simmons was number 15. And Joel Embiid was number 12. Again, this is based on this season, not in general. I think a couple key names to mention here. Robert Covington, Clint Capella, Andre Drummond, all behind Al Horford um, in the 80s there. And both Chris Middleton and Jason Tatum getting the nod above Joel Embiid at 10 and 11. Another one that's sure to draw some controversy. So, Lucas, what are your thoughts there? Who do you think they got right? Who do you think they got wrong? I think Al being on this list over Josh Richardson was a bit of a hot take. Again, Josh has been injured quite a bit this year, so I think that factored into it. But I, I was not expecting Horford to be on the list, frankly. Yeah, so, very yeah no. Yeah, I, I'm going to – I'm sorry for interrupting, but I'm going to have to agree. Horford being on this list, I, I, I think you heard me. I, I, said, I audibly said, wow, when you said that. So that, that's surprising. I, you know, and not to say that Horford can't become the player that he used to, but obviously this season has not been kind of him due to age, fit, and injury. So, I, I, you know, I think that's fair to say that. Uh, it's shocking that he's on the list. I think Tobias is probably where he needs to be right now. Uh, I might have put him in the 50s, but, you know, I think Tobias is there. I don't think Jason Tatum's better than Joel Embiid. I, I think there's a little bit of a perimeter bias there for sure. I think that's that's my biggest thing that I can take away from that. Yeah, I think I think you're you're right there. I wouldn't put Tatum over Embiid myself, but I mean we were mentioning we were talking earlier about whether we think Embiid can can really be the number one guy on a championship team at this point. And I, I think in terms of just player archetype, the guy that you would maybe be more comfortable with leading a championship team, maybe not this season, but down the line, is probably Jason Tatum. I think he's heading in that direction. He's been really good, especially the second half of this season. He's really kicked it up a notch uh, the past couple months uh, before the season was suspended. So I think Tatum's definitely in that conversation, but I probably wouldn't put him. Even Chris Middleton, as great as Chris Middleton has been, uh, I'd probably give him the nod over those two guys. Mm-hmm. I really liked Ben at 15. I think that w- that's a pretty bold statement. I know most guys probably wouldn't have been that high, but I think it's justified. I, as I've said on this podcast and many podcasts before, I think Ben is severely underrated for what he brings to the court. He's one of the best defenders in basketball at this point. Kudos to them for putting him there. Uh, but, yeah, to touch on Al Horford really quick, they did point out, you know, his numbers at center have been pretty solid and, you know, on par with his career of late. He's he's played pretty well at the five this season. And I wouldn't say he's been as good as he was in Boston. anywhere close to that. But he just hasn't played at the five enough. You know, he's been forced into these really poor lineup constructions. You know, it's kind of a square peg in a round hole type thing with Al at this point. Uh, I think as a player, he's a top 100 player, but in terms of value added this year, I'm probably not putting him on that list, especially not ahead of, of Josh Richardson, even with all the, the injuries that Josh has, has gone through this year. You know, injuries have been a major thing to the Sixers this year that I think is an underrated story surrounding all their, you know, chemistry issues. You know, we talk about Horford basically being injured and dealing with injuries since – December, early December, Simmons has dealt with two, you know, upper body injuries. Joel Embiid's been conserving, 
himself so that he doesn't get injured. And then you have some, you know, you have Richardson, who's probably missed the most games out of anybody due to injury this year. And, and Tobias Harris is the only one that I can think of that's played every single game. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, yeah, no, injuries have been a big factor here. But, uh, For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on there. I think the uh, probably the biggest storyline for the Sixers beyond Ben moving to the fours, just that the fact that they're essentially healthy at this point for the first time this season. Um, and that's going to be big down the stretch in terms of their ability to compete. I think it's probably best that we move on here. We're going to talk about the uh, social justice messages on the back of NBA jerseys. The league gave about 30 or so options, I believe, to players um, – terms of messages that they can put atop their jersey and after I believe four games move to the bottom of their jersey. Um, Most players in the league have um, agreed to partake in this endeavor so far but uh, on the Sixers I know Joel Embiid, Al Horford and um, I believe Mike Mike Scott Scott has said he's going to opt out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's for sure at this point but Embiid and Horford for sure are not going to be partaking. It doesn't sound like Scott will either. Um, essentially because they didn't feel like they had enough input, um, you know, into the, the options here. LeBron James said the same thing. He's not going to participate. So, Lucas, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think the NBA gave players enough of a voice here? Do you think this is just a superficial um, action, or do you think it's it's going to, you know, provoke meaningful change? So there's a couple things to uh, unwrap here, and I actually eventually want to – I'm going to ask Uriah in a little bit, to, you know, his thoughts too. But for me personally, here, here's what I know about it. They talked about to the Players, you know, Association about this. They had the, you know, Executive Committee of the Players Association involved here. So there were players – you know, the Players Association was involved. So I don't think the NBA just made a blind Blake, you know, this is what's okay, what this is not what's okay. and. I know some, you know, they just decided not to have, you know, the name of victims and maybe that's just to, you know, bring sensitivity, you know, make sure that they don't touch any negative chords with any of those families that, you know, lost somebody. But, and I, and I'm not just trying to discredit what, you know, Mike Scott and everybody else has been saying, because I think obviously they're, this is in its infancy and I expect this to probably be something more, grown as time goes on and I don't expect it just to stop here in the bubble I expect it to be something else now I don't think it'll be where the names are always but I think that they'll have they'll allow messages on the jersey at some point and I think they'll expand that as they go but I think considering with everything else that the NBA has got going on trying to figure out this season next season everything in between that uh, I think they they did not navigate this perfectly no but at the same token, I think that they tried their best and I think is a good starting point. Do I think this will make major changes? No, but I think it will. I think it'll start discussions. And I know for a fact on our Facebook page, because uh, I, I primarily run that. I know you run the Twitter page. That's some insider information for our listeners there. That we've had some comments about people saying that they don't want to watch it now because of the names. And that's a shame. But I think it's it's definitely invoking some conversations. So I think that's that's something that that's good. But I will echo what Stephen mm-hmm. A. Smith has said on ESPN multiple times, is that 
while these sim- acts of symbolism is nice, it's not going to make any major changes. I think the major changes we will see will have to come at the you know, government level. It's not perfect, but it's the NBA attempting to unite with its players, and I expect it to grow as as we move on. But I'm curious to see what Uriah thinks about this, too, because Uriah is an African-American man, and he would have more insight on this than either me or you, Chris, would have. I support everything involved with them wanting to convey a message of showing equality and, and all the social things going on in the country. But I will admit though, as a sports fan (laughs) and with some of those comments you mentioned earlier on Facebook, people saying, Oh, I'm bowing out. I can't watch it. It's just too much. It makes me even more sad, you know, considering everything going on with COVID that, everything is so divisive now. You know, you can't wear a mask. You have to wear a mask. Uh, NBA players wearing messages on the back of their jerseys. Oh, I'm going to tune out. It's just very disheartening to know that people can't put themselves in other people's shoes. I don't like the divisiveness in sports, even the Kaepernick thing. And I support what he was trying to, to convey with his message. But again, there's there's other more constructive ways to get your point across outside of the realm of, of sports, which in my opinion is supposed to unite people. It is interesting how some players don't even want to touch it. I think Kawhi Leonard and LeBron and some of the other stars are saying, you know what, we support the cause, but we're not wearing anything on our Jersey. So you could just see that some guys is like, no, this is too hot for me to touch right now. I'm just going to let other players do it. But, yeah, it's, it's just disheartening that people would say to hell with the NBA and not watch just because players are putting something in the back of their jersey. But, yeah, it'll be controversial for a little bit, and then it'll probably die out. Yeah, I think, I think at this point any quote-unquote controversy that this creates is probably good controversy in the sense that, as you, both you and Lucas said, it's generating a conversation, and it's a conversation that we really need to be having right now I think you said uniting Uriah. I think it's important that people unite behind these causes. And I think that's probably what the NBA is going for here. You know, I don't think any of the statements that they um, approved to put on the jerseys were particularly inflammatory. You know, Black Lives Matter is not, it really should not be a controversial statement. It, it, I don't, I really don't understand how that, um, you know, provokes so much anger in so many people, but most of these are pretty benign, you know, standard social justice equality uh, messages, nothing too really, you know, aggressive or, or assertive on that front. And I think you mentioned, Lucas, the NBA Players Association being at the table here. Um, I, I think the counter to that would be that LeBron James didn't feel like he or, you know, the players really had that much input. And LeBron James is the guy. So, if you know, he doesn't feel like the players had – you know, enough of a voice in picking out these messages. I think it's fair to maybe uh, speculate that they didn't or that they, they maybe weren't, uh, you know, listened to as much as they wanted to be um, on the whole. I, I think one route that they could have taken is just letting guys come up with their own messages and improving the, and approving them on a case-by-case basis. That's probably what I would have uh, liked to have seen happen. But um, as far as Embiid and Horford go, you know, power to them you know, making the decision based on what they feel is right. I'm not going to hold it against anybody for either participating or not participating. I I think there are valid reasons to go both ways. 
but like you said, you're right. I, I do think sports is mainly about unifying people. And I think it's important that people, you know, start to unify behind these, you know, very important messages. And just to piggyback off of that, Chris, I did say that what I was talking that why I know the players were at the table when this was discussed, I think obviously the NBA still needs to work on this further and expand that list. But like I said, I think this is a good starting point. It's obviously not the end point, but I think for the, you know, the amount of stuff that they were dealing with in the time frame that they had, I think this is, they could have done a lot worse. They could have not done anything at all. I think this is a good starting point. Yeah, and I think one important thing to point out here is that the NBA has said they are going to auction off some of these social message these social message jerseys um, to create a social justice fund. So as far as putting their money where their mouth is, I think that's an important step, and I think that's an important thing to include here is that they are going beyond just putting you know some phrases on the back of the jerseys which is nice to see um, Mike Scott said it was a miss, you know, when, when he was first interviewed about the subject, I think that would be an effort from the league to kind of, you know, go further. So props to them for that. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a good thing uh, for the league to be doing. Most definitely. And I want to mo- go ahead and move on the conversation. And we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the podcast, but we thought it would be a good idea to, to bring this up later on is that, you know, we talked about Ben Simmons moving the power forward and Shake Milton becoming the team's point guard, which appears to, you know, it's nothing set in stone yet, but, it, you know, appears to be trending. That It seems to be trending in that direction. So, with that in mind, it seems like we're definitely going to have Al Horford come off the bench. So, what type of implications does Ben Simmons and Shake Milton have not only on Al Horford, you know, their position changes, but also anybody else in the, in the rotation or lineups. Yeah, I think obviously Horford's going to get all the backup center minutes, but let's say for a second that Brett Brown follows through on his comments from earlier this season. He plays Joel 38 minutes a night in the postseason. That would leave only 10 minutes for Al at center. He's going to play more than 10 minutes a night. So there are going to be moments when Al is on the court with Joel. Um, And again, Ben's probably going to be playing 40 or something minutes a night. So the window for Al to play minutes with, you know, at least one of Joel and Ben off the court is not very big. So I'm really interested to see how Brett Brown handles that. I do think adding Shake Milton and Alec Burks in larger doses to get their playmaking on the floor is going to help, um, you know, move things around a bit better. But the Horford fit has been wonky all season. There's really not a great way to make it work um, with Joel and Ben in the rotation. And at this point, it it seems like his role is going to be fairly limited. So, yeah, I'll shoot it back to you, Lucas. How many minutes do you think Al's going to be playing um, once the postseason starts? So, I think on a previous podcast, I think I said around 24. And that was before Ben was shifted to the power forward position. But now you have Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and even arguably Mike Scott, at least on offense, who would be a better fit next to Joel Embiid, you know, at power forward versus Al. So you have that. You have depth, you know, cutting into Al's minutes. And then, like you said, we're going to see a lot of minutes of Ben and Joel Embiid on the court probably at the same time during the playoffs, especially now that Ben has the ball out of his hands. So 
I think in that regard, it's really going to hurt uh, Horford and his minutes. And I wrote about that, and it's coming out tomorrow morning. Essentially, it's going to cut into Al Horford's minutes. So while I originally said 20 on a previous podcast, I think we're at uh, 24. I think, honestly, we'd be lucky if we get 20 minutes a night of Al Horford. I think yeah. more likely it's going to be between 15 and 18. Yeah, it's definitely not not the ideal situation when you're paying him, you know, upwards of a hundred million dollars to to be your your quote unquote power forward. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think we're gonna see that big of a role for Al in the playoffs just because the Sixers roster really doesn't you know have have a ton of breathing room for him. There's really no no way to work him into the rotation in a major way without taking away from Joel and Ben. I think another small detail here is if Ben's going to be playing the four full time, that could mean a few more minutes or, or, or a, ma- a bigger role maybe for Howell Neto um, as the backup point guard. I think that's something to keep an eye on, but as far as Al goes, yeah, I think anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes is probably a good starting place. I'm optimistic that, that the four months off has, has helped him. He said he feels a lot better now than he did during the season. So maybe he comes back. Uh, rejuvenated and closer to his old self that would obviously uh change quite a bit but until we see that uh, i think it's fair to you know move on with some pessimism um, regarding his role just because i don't know how it works at this point so i i want to touch on two things that you said there first off i pray that we don't see how Neto in the playoffs he's not playoff He's not a playoff player. He's he's uh, you know how I feel about Neto. I'm not going to get into it, but I don't think he should be playing seeing playoff minutes. I think you're going to have to play Alex Burks as your backup point guard, or have Ben Simmons play as your backup point guard. I will say this: if the Sixers run into either the Bucks or the Raptors in the playoffs, I think that's where we're going to see a lot more Horford, especially if Toronto goes big and plays Ibaka and Gasol at the same time. I think that's when we could see a lot more of Al Horford is when we play against one of those bigger teams, because and I, and I was listening to this the uh, on my way home before this podcast from work, and uh, basically it was on uh, the Low Post podcast with uh, you know Zach Lowe. He had uh, I believe was it Kevin Ar? No, no, no. I forget who it was. He had a guest on, and they were talking Bucks. They're like the only teams that could really not make the uh, you know bucks so basically there's only two teams that the bucks didn't match up well because most teams play their center on Giannis so that Brooke Lopez can take advantage of the smaller player that they put on him the Sixers are one of those teams cuz let's face it Joel Embiid's probably going to be defending Giannis so that means either Ben or Horford are going to end up playing against Lopez and while Ben's good him banging against Horford in the post is not ideal so I think that's going to be the matchup where we see Horford and Bede and Simmons play a lot of minutes together just based off the fact that they can cripple the uh, we've seen them cripple Milwaukee's offense before so I think yeah. that's my only chance of optimism there for him getting more than 20 minutes a game yeah, I, I definitely think Milwaukee and Toronto, those matchups specifically, were why the Sixers uh, were so keen on getting Al Horford last summer. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, it's going to depend, obviously, on how he looks in the first round and in these eight eight seeding games. But 
I do think those are the matchups where Al Horford is going to be uh, a big key. So I, I think it's probably time to move on here and hand the reins over to Uriah for our Twitter poll of the week. All right, guys. So our Twitter poll of the week had to do with a question relative to we're talking about playoffs now, right? So the question had to do with three particular 76ers players. And the question was, which player is going to be the most important once the playoffs begin? And the three options were Matisse Thybul, Shake Milton, and Furkan Korkmaz. Now, we got quite a few responses, and most people said Shake. I think everyone's getting all shaked up, right, about <laughs> him entering the uh, lineup. Yeah, you like what I did, right? Yeah, um, yeah I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Used the wrong <laughs> tense. I think he used the wrong verb tense anyway. But anyway, so um so what I did was people left their comment but not much activity on the responses. So what I did was I went to a one of our loyalist most loyal followers, Urban Esport Report. Uh, mm-hmm. this person on Twitter said in response he said, "Man, tough. While Tease's defense is major in, in igniting our transition game." I say shake because he provides things we don't have. Ball handler, check. Off dribble scorer, shooter, check. Catch and shoot, check. Pick and roll guard with ability to pull up, check. He can be the glue that brings the offense together. So what do you guys think? Do you guys agree with Urban Esports report about shake? Is he the most important bench player coming into the playoffs? Yeah, I don't. Uh, he's not really a bench player anymore. Yeah, he's, yeah, that's so, true. That's true. Yeah, I, yeah. I would agree. I think Shake would have been my pick uh, even before this news broke about him moving into the starting lineup, and I, I think he nailed it um, with regard to Shake giving the Sixers some some attributes that they don't really have elsewhere on the rotation. His ability to run the pick and roll is going to be big with Ben at the four. His shooting is a big one as well. He's maybe the most consistent three-point shooter on the roster if we uh, buy the small sample size from this season. So Shake as as a point guard and as a secondary playmaker is going to be really big. Uh, it seems like he's on track to get a lot of minutes down the stretch here. And, and as much as I'm a fan of Matisse and even Furkan to a lesser degree, I think they both have some pretty sizable flaws that might prevent them from getting you know, expanded minutes in the playoffs. I would probably prefer Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson over those two um, in, in a more competitive environment. So, yeah, I think it's shake all the way. Yeah, you, yeah, it's definitely shake. I, uh, and Urban, I've had plenty of conversations with, I forget Urban's full name, but I'm just going to call him Urban, not Keith Urban, of course. Um, <laughs> but no, he's right. He's not wrong. Each one of those players obviously brings something special. Um, and while Chris is probably right, you probably want the veteran players and Robinson and Burks, you know, there's still value in having guys that have been on the team longer, like Porkmaz and Matisse. He was spot on about Matisse's, you know, role defensively and in his transition. He's not. And who knows, we might see a better – Matisse uh, during this these seeding games because uh, Brown hinted that he's going to have either nine or ten players in the rotation. So so that's going to be interesting to see. And Corkmaz, we know what he brings. I think he's underrated outside of he's, – he's an underrated offensive player as a total because I think he's more than just a three-point shooter. I think he's very decent in the mid-range too. But 
you know, I think they each bring something, but obviously Shake not as bench player anymore. He's a starter, and I think he's obviously going to be key to how well the Sixers' offense goes moving forward. So, Uriah, you recently wrote about are the Sixers a sleeper pick in the East, and you said no. And but Chris, my thoughts are for you. Do you think? Do you agree with Uriah? Do you think they're a sleeper or not? Well, I think it really just depends on how you define a sleeper because I, I tend to think of sleepers as teams that no one's really talking about. And I think that every major outlet at this point has like picked the Sixers as their sleeper. So at that point, I don't know if you can really call them a sleeper. But from the the standpoint of you know their competitive odds, uh, I think the Sixers are maybe a fringe contender, but I don't really buy them as, you know, a championship contender this season. So from that perspective, I'd say no. I don't think the Sixers are going to win the East. I don't think they're going to really compete for a championship. I just – I can't – as much as I would enjoy that happening uh, as someone who gets to cover the team, I just don't see it happening this season with all that's gone on. But as far as, you know, know, media coverage, I think the Sixers have plenty of voices advocating for them um, out there. So. I don't know if they're a quote-unquote sleeper in that sense. I'll say that they have a puncher's chance. I don't think that it's likely, but I think they have this the talent to have a puncher's chance to get out of the East and into the NBA Finals. Not likely, like you said. I don't think for all the reasons you said, but I I think they have a puncher's chance. I think I would put them – because I think we can say in the West, most likely it's going to be one of the L.A. teams, but Houston has a puncher's chance. I think the Sixers are on that Houston level where they have a puncher's chance to come out of the East. Yeah, so I think my definitive answer here is just going to be no, because A, they're being talked about way more than a sleeper would be talked about, and B, I don't think they have a chance to win. So there's really no no universe in which I personally think they're a sleeper, but um you know, Uriah obviously agrees. He thinks uh, the Sixers are, are genuine contenders. He's maybe more optimistic on that front. I suggest all of you guys go read his piece where he gave four very convincing reasons as to why the Sixers are not uh, sleepers in the East this year. It's on the site. You know, go check it out. And, yeah, Lucas, any final thoughts? Nope. I think we can wrap it up. Cool beans. Well, thank you everyone again for listening to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. Wherever you are listening from, know that we really do genuinely appreciate it. I know these are difficult times for a lot of us, and you being willing to come spend, you know, an hour or so of your day or your night or your morning, whenever you're listening, to to come talk Sixers basketball with us. It means a lot. And we hope to see you soon. We have some exciting guests um, potentially coming up here in the future. So keep keep checking in, keep listening, and we'll see you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.